0: Welcome to the Sense-Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, Permaculture Educator and Global Ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever. And even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on. So our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas, and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the Global South, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is, and and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly, and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations, and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubbi people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my pleasure to welcome Earth Laws warrior Michelle Maloney to the show today. Michelle is a maid who I've known and worked with for many years, and I have huge respect for her work in earth-centred systems change. In essence, Michelle is working towards a vision of an earth-centred society. She's a big picture thinker and advocate for earth and nature for all life and deeply committed to connecting positive practical action towards an economy of well-being and being informed deeply by Indigenous ways of knowing and organising. Michelle would have to be one of the biggest-hearted people I know for her love of the planet, of life, of nature. Her entire days are spent dedicated to this work. So towards this goal of Earth-Centered Systems Change, Michelle convenes three organisations, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, Future Dreaming, and the New Economy Network of Australia. She also hosts the Regenerative Songlines Australia Conversations that I'm also part of, alongside Indigenous Elders such as Professor Mary Graham, Anne Paulina, and Paulina, Tyson young Porter, and many amazing local leaders. Her focus, Michelle's focus, is about encouraging us to reimagine economics, governance, the legal system, and support the emergence of a national civil society strategy. And Michelle also encourages us to start where we're at with what we have and, and to give yourself permission to step up, speak up, and act for the change that the earth needs and that all life needs. So I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. Uh thanks for joining me on the show today um Michelle you kind of you for me you're one of the the biggest picture biggest hearted people i know who has this interesting vision about what the world where where we need to be going in the world and and actually how we can get there so i wanted to talk with you about that i you know i've come across a lot of your work and been involved in many different programs you've run and it's always this Really big, comprehensive, overarching view, and I've seen you describe too as like a um, what's it like a a warrior lawyer and a and you know like you're a force of nature you really That's are. Very kind, this, I think this <laughs> enormous sense of movement that you bring to anything that you touch, and it's just it's magnificent, really. And I've been so delighted to be working with you in different ways, and different things, all the way through many of those, and to be part of programs that you've organised. But I wanted to, to just maybe start at that point, if you could maybe articulate what is that bigger picture? What, what is the kind of world that you think that we need to be working towards? What is, what is it that you see?
1: Mm, what I see is I guess industrialised societies being able to wake up from this strange couple of hundred years possibly longer if you look into the deeper elements of our worldview. But if my, as a descendant of the, of the Western culture and as a settler slash invader um, descendant here on this continent, my vision is for human societies who have been causing huge destruction to actually wake up to themselves and look around at Indigenous cultures, at deep ecology, at other ways of thinking about our relationship with the world and to really significantly change most of what we do, not how we are as people, not how we love or have fun or how we laugh. I mean, these things have been around since time immemorial, but how we organise ourselves and how we create work and how we create stuff, you know, how we organise our societies. So my vision um, is a very positive one. And it's emerged over many years of loving the environment. But my My particular passion is for Australia. I am connected to many international initiatives and, of course, I care about the whole planet deeply, but I'm really madly in love with this continent. Um, So my vision is, and in fact, one way to imagine it is if we think of the past as a map of Australia with its current political boundaries, the Western past is this invasion of a place we knew nothing about and we drew all these straight lines and we started to extract everything we could because that's what we were used to doing. And then if you press pause on that and you look further into ancient time and 250 years ago and you look at the map of aboriginal Australia where you had the equivalent of 5 or 600 language groups Mary Graham and a wonderful Kombumerri Indigenous elder refers to them as think about the whole continent as managed by all these little local councils. And they were all deeply connected to place. And they had a really profound governance civilization. Like the more you learn about it, the more remarkable it is. And then if you go to a third map and think, and it's blank, it's just a map of Australia that's blank, then what does our future hold given the sheer, you know, level of destruction um, my people have caused on this beautiful continent? So the map I bring up when I have these discussions is actually just to trigger conversation, which is a map of the 89 bioregions Of Australia. It's a Western scientific concept. It's not um, Indigenous boundaries, but it's a way to open up the minds of non-Indigenous people and say, if we actually cared about the living world, and if we understood that we are patterned into it, we're not separate from it, and we wanted to undo some of the bad things we've managed to develop over hundreds of years, then thinking about exactly as Mary uh, Graham and other Indigenous people say, thinking about land first. And Mm -hmm. I don't Land. I mean life. I'm always talking about life and not just the biosphere but everything that supports it. So my vision for the future is how do we take the very, very best of us and turn that into something that ensures we can have all of our life, all of the community of life flourishing in Australia as well as human beings? How do we take the best of Western science, Western knowledge, but how do we go further back and go let's right some of the wrongs Let's engage with each other around a colonial or decolonial conversation. And how do we grapple with both the human justice issues, the human equity issues, but always within the template of caring for country and loving life and not wanting to take out entire forests with all the possums and the gliders, but actually going, how do we do these human things whilst supporting more biodiversity and more flourishing of life? So my vision is on the one hand, really, really general. I just want more life. I want more fluff and featheries and scalings. I like my animals and my plants and my soil. I'm fascinated by the little things and the big things. Um, but it's also quite complex, as you say, and I was laughing when you introduced me because I think it's because I'm a lawyer by training. I certainly never was a, a lawyer in court, but my fascination with how people organise themselves and the deep understanding you can get of Western systems from a law degree helps you think big picture. But also connect that right down to the minutia of which mushroom should really be flourishing on this hill. So so yeah. It's so so about thank you for that. that wonderful um overview because
0: you know, essentially what I've seen you describe it in, in some places is as a earth-centered society. Yep. And that um and that very much based, as you're saying, on indigenous ways of knowing and learning learning from that. And so uh, and the the governance structure that you talked about and Mary Graham, I wonder if you could just, you know, like we're sort of starting here rather than the beginning of the story, but I'm kind of happy that we're doing this because I think this conversation that you're having with Mary Graham is is such an important part of the work that you're doing. You're currently writing a book with her. Could you just tell us a yes. little bit about who Mary Graham is and, and what it is that this government, this different type of governance is and how that fits with your picture of sure. the picture
1: of um, the world? It's been one of the really the greatest gifts of my life to have not only met Mary, but to become friends with her. And anyone who knows her knows how wonderful and and really remarkable she is. And I don't want to speak for her, but I can give a brief introduction. Mary Graham is an associate professor of political science and um, is a Kombu Mary person from the Yugambeh Language Group, which is now the Gold Coast. And Mary has been working for decades on a whole range of um, policy issues and projects and, and insightful ways of analysing governance and systems, but I guess I can only speak for what we work on together, and that is she can talk about the relationist ethos and almost the kind of the deeper underlying systems of thinking and philosophy and logic that created the, um, the Aboriginal governance and the Aboriginal civilization that flourished on this continent for thousands of years um, so when she and when she talks about the relationist ethos and the way, I mean, I, I don't want to try to speak for Mary. I strongly suggest people. Yeah, you know, we've been doing a lot of workshops and, and interviews with her, so there's material. <clears throat> but the thing that's beautiful is when she she kind of blows back the mind of your average Westerner, because Westerners have come from a very very old culture of expansionism and extractivism. I'm not saying that we weren't once connected um, through whether it was um, paganism or any other belief system in Europe, but at the same time tribes pre-Neolithic were running around taking land from each other and, and doing stuff and expanding. And then the colonial era saw that European culture continue to keep taking and fighting and stealing and grabbing and moving and expanding. And people think of it as extractivism, but I think of it as a real expansionism, which quite frankly, seeing now in some of the discussions we're having around the exploration of the moon and Mars this blind belief that we can have whatever we want even though we don't know, understand so on the one hand there's the Western culture and many of our ways which have inf- infiltrated particularly post-industrial revolution this market-based you know idea of how life is um, other people could talk more deeply about notions of progress and how the West thinks we must keep moving forward and And so then to sit with Mary Graham and have someone like her talk about the relationist ethos, this, the fact that the land creates you and you are obliged forever and that everyone is an autonomous being, plants, animals, spirit beings, whatever, and everyone deserves something even deeper than respect. And then she goes deeper into the kind of the structures of these uh, clan groups and local governing entities that were deeply egalitarian. And small cultures are deeply patterned into their own bioregion and big things like completely non-hierarchical. They had elders, but that was emerging through the norms in their society, not, I will pay you, therefore I am your boss. You know, no respect required. So, and whenever Mary gives her talks in some of our workshops, I often lead, which is unusual. I prefer, um, obviously, our first peoples to go first. But we often, I do a critique through earth jurisprudence of how the Western systems emerged and What things like property law and the belief in private property and market-based systems have done to the world, Um, and then Mary comes in explaining this very different worldview. And as she says, not better or worse, although she loves it. So why? But just a really wonderful way for many of us who come from the dominant culture, who come from privilege, to just see something completely different. To accept that not our way is not always the right way. In fact, it's often the wrong way. Mm -hmm. The book that Mary and I are working on is called Future Law. And I had a colon and something long after it, but I can't remember, I've changed it a few times. What we're doing is exploring this amazing, I guess, dense space of knowledge around Indigenous governance from Mary. And then I do an earth jurisprudence critique and and I'm kind also to the Western culture and what our ways of doing are. And it almost is like what I just said about the three pictures of the map. And then the third map is how do we build a future on this continent that looks different but isn't too scary for people to change towards. And that's where our project called the Green Prince Initiative is all about, and it's really about how do we start from country up, how do we respect and work in solidarity with Aboriginal peoples and let them lead projects and get out of their way for their own self-determination, but how do we as Westerners shift our our law, our economics, our interactions with each other, the way we govern each other, How do we shift that so that we can have a 21st century future that rolls into you know time immemorial, as opposed to what many of us see at the moment, which is a ticking clock Mm -hmm. extractionism of this planet and our constant. It's a much more hopeful vision, isn't it? That that there, you know, it's
0: actually describing that there is actually another way. It's not like we're just catapulting ourselves towards oblivion. That if we just pause and look sideways and or even you know full 360, we can see that yes. there's not just one trajectory of of society no. there is
1: and, and, yeah. and it's it's been so interesting. You know, I've been working with with Aboriginal mates and friends since my teens, since my twenties. And so my my hunger to understand difference and to understand different ways of being has always been part of the Western concept of novelty seeking. And I've always been a bit a bit not, not even frustrated, just confused by Westerners who were so close-minded to other things and who were xenophobic and such. Because I always assumed our Western culture, one of its key traits, was the pursuit of new, was the the, the obsession with the next new shiny thing or the new exciting place. That's why we were explorers, and yet we get to a place and then we sh- we shut down in terms of what we're actually interested in learning about. So, so yeah, that engaging with other more land-based cultures is a really good way to stimulate thinking about something. And I guess I really want to stress, and Mary and I have talked about this at length, a lot, of, a lot of really well-intentioned non-Indigenous people in Australia think that what they can do now is throw up their hands and just follow Aboriginal people. That's, that's what they should do. Aboriginal people know everything. They're, you know, they look at them as some kind of other creature and, oh, they, know, they have all the wisdom. And Mary and I just sit back in our practical way and just laugh and go, oh, my God, that's not cool. You know, we trash the joint. We treat people like rubbish for 200 years, and now we want them to lead the way because we've made a mess and we, well, we don't know what to do. And so to us it's about all of us taking responsibility and particularly as a, as a, a non-Indigenous person. Um, bloody well, man up, girl up, take responsibility. You know, face colonisation right in the face and go, this is what happened. My ancestors were part of this. My culture has caused this, and I'm going to handle that. It freaked me out in my early 20s when I did all the reading and finally, you know, my school system didn't teach me any of it. But I started to engage with deeper understandings and deeper stories from Aboriginal mates. And, like, oh, my God, I spent many, many, many a time fetal position crying in bed in my 20s. But mm-hmm. I wanted to block that off and go white fella guilt. It was like, well, shit, how can I play a role in making things better? How do we do this together? Mm. Um, And how do we, in our cultural background, not just take responsibility in an aggressive way, but actually? And Mary comforted me by saying this: "She goes, you guys got to look at your own culture too. You got to look back into your own ways of thinking and doing, and just, you know, grab onto some of those for your own land-based culture." Um, And I think that gives some people a bit of comfort too. Yeah, yeah. I am. I am not ideological. I just want people to love the living world as much as me, and that's a bit (laughs) soft. It's to make decisions on a daily basis, they don't trash the joint, you know, that's it. Yeah, that earth centered approach that you put, yeah, that life
0: comes as the first part of any decision making that you do. So, so I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit more around that because there's, in terms of actually shifting towards this more earth centered society, we need a different kind of governance, we need a different kind of economic system. And you talked too about um, the way that land is owned and shared. And yeah. so, Maybe I don't know whether those two can fit together the, ec- the different kind of economics and land systems. how does how do how do we approach that as a society how do we <laughs> how do we reimagine that and also how do we shift? Like
1: what's the transition towards yeah. that? that it's It's huge. And when I'm teaching, I often use this very corny saying, but it's appropriate. Like the last thing a fish will notice is water. <laughs> and the last thing that any of us notice, really, um, and sometimes we have to be poked and prodded through an education or a process, is the world we live in. We're born into systems. We take our housing, our climate, uh the plants and animals, our parents completely for granted. This is just, that's the background. It's true. Yes, absolutely. Right? No question. And that's why travelling broadens the mind, you know, that's why anyone who says when I travelled mostly what I learned was about my own culture because I'd go, well, hang on, look at how they do that. That's really cool. Oh, we don't do that. You know, so it's the learning and breaking out of the way we automatically think. So how do we do it? Well, there are so many ways, and I I will I often joke, but it's true. My idea of creating systems change is to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. You know, I am not I am not precious about what we do. We should all, we have to do a whole bunch of things at once. But certainly in the realm of thinking about Western relationships or lack of relationships with land or with plants and animals, a really nice place to start is just talking about rights of nature versus current private property and ownership structures. And it depends on what the audience is interested in, but often if you start with, well, what if a river had its own rights to exist, what does that mean? And then getting people to explore that. And and I really have to keep saying this. This is just to push back at Western ways of thinking. Rights of nature, if it's at all useful for Indigenous people, is just another Western construct to build their own systems connected to, to explain to Westerners why earth and life is sacred, right? They don't need rights of nature. They had a completely different structure of inbuilt ethic and care for the land and for animals, or at least management of resources in a more sustainable way. So certainly when we talk about the land ethic, it's really interesting to, to talk about the history of property ownership and the concepts around land and who owns what literally from pre-medieval England because that's where our legal system comes from, um, the feudalism, or they called it the men, menor, menorialism. Um, feudalism was a name. We threw back at it afterwards. Um, but this notion that people could not only own land but own each other and the, the, the deeply inbuilt hierarchical structures, that the, those who owned things were more important than and could control others. All of these hierarchical structures, these attitudes towards land and resources came very, very, very early on um, in our culture. And you can point back to anthropocentrism. In the Greek culture, some people, that's 2,500 years ago or or more depending, 4,000 years ago. You know, you can point to all these points in the in the Western culture where we see ourselves as the primary entity and that land is just there for us and there's lots of different ways to convey that to people you know land really is in our legal system maybe the best way to explain it is if you put the western legal lens over your eyes and looked out at the world and you could see what the legal system sees you'd see people some people you'd see all these perhaps beige boxy entities and they're corporations we have created them they have legal rights we see them in the law they can go to court people can go to court and everything else is just this kind of nothingness because everything is either an entity or an object that we own. And then if you put the lens of earth jurisprudence over the top of that, then suddenly imagine life breaking out across this beige landscape. Pop, pop, pop. All these little beige boxes turn into possums and koalas and grass and butterflies. But the legal system doesn't see any of them as a subject of the law. It just sees them either as something, an object we've decided to protect or an object we've decided to eat, or an object we've created that has a lot of legal power, like a corporation. Mm. Examine these ideas of the foundation of how our legal system supports destruction of nature. It's because it was built to. Mm. It was, the legal system emerged through the common law and through these other weird um, equity and processes with the king who himself saw himself as sovereign and connected to God, and he was at the top. You know, and then whatever he said was the law. So somewhere way down the track, the law stopped being anyway connected to land. Mm-hmm. It was in our European culture. I think it's a very, very long time ago. And, and I remember—I I was going to say—I remember being at university in Melbourne,
0: and um, I studied landscape architecture and you know environmental planning, land-based things. And I was sent off as part of the undergraduate course to the economics department. They wanted to have us like a really broad. We went to engineering and architecture and geography and economics and I remember this economy ec- economics lecture down the front this massive great hall talking about nature just as an externality
1: yes. Oh, my my
0: hysterical- yes yes, yes. I know. that's how I felt it's like I just felt this rise of anger and I'm at the, yes. right at the very back and I just wanted to explode that and and so, what is the type of economic?
1: How do we like? It's the legal system. It's the economic system. It's the land system. Well, it's the government. It's interesting, Morag. Like, and I've had similar conversations. I remember sitting. I had the misfortune of being in a government position for two years when um, my husband had some health problems, and I just had the bub. But we needed the money, and I got this job in government. And I knew that I would not, not enjoy it. But I do remember sitting in this room with about ten other people now talking about some regulatory stuff and cost-benefit analysis, and I just sat there and I couldn't help it. I actually burst out and said, cost-benefit analysis doesn't count. This forest is unique. You pretend that offsets, you know, and I had the offset conversations, I'm sure anyone listening will understand, but they looked at me like I was like some mad witch, you know. Um, mm. It's tricky. But I think the next stuff, the next ways we think, the next systems, I mean, they're already bubbling. They have been for a while. But I don't think there's going to be one simple transition. You know, I'm not going to say, voila, we are in the new economy. Ah, oh, we have everything. We yeah. have arrived. Yes, we have arrived. Um, the new systems are being created and have been emerging for a very long time. But the, the trick now is joining up the dots and pushing that systems change. So, mm-hmm. a simple example around economic thinking, you know, the neoliberal project, which a whole bunch of right wing think tanks really got together with a phenomenal amount of money and deliberation and deliberately created in the late 70s a shift from economics um, as being even anything to do with the welfare state and being primarily about, you know, these these doctrines around individuals and marketplace and the free market. Anyway, that stuff can be broken down. It's all human created. Mm -hmm. These are so persuasive, but they're not gravity. You know, they're not breathing in and out. So all of this stuff can change, but the one thing that we're up against is a rising tide of, of amazing, you know, grassroots people, individuals, organisations, governments in some places, but they keep getting pushed back on by what I would call the one percenters, the, those who have, thank you very much, made a huge amount of not just money but power and privilege through either the 20th century or really by being born into the 20th century on the back of their own very rich relatives who made a huge amount of money off empire. Um You know, so we've got really big. And I was in a web, I was in a panel discussion the other day, and someone said, Why don't we have the political will? And I said, Well, may I just gently point out it's not just a lack of political will, it's an actual very deliberate, you know, complex structures stopping the new changes from happening, you know, whether it's tax subsidies, government allowing certain kinds of projects and developments, and our current federal and many state governments Mm -hmm. completely rejecting. Anything that would threaten, really at the heart of it, extractive expansionism. You know, I was talking it's a- to
0: a, an economist who's in the um, who happens to be able to get into things like World Bank conversations, and mm-hmm. but has a has a heart of of kind of like ecological thinking. And I, I yeah. don't know how he manages both both worlds, but anyway, he was saying we're talking about the work that I do in in Africa and the, with refugees, and he says, "Look, you know." It's not going to change their while this current economic system exists. You know, like if, if Kenya borrows money, for example, they pay back 68 times the same amount as, say, a First Nations country. So the loans that they are given are so, so differently offered that it's always going to stick people in the debt trap and yep. always um, disadvantaged. And so, like you're saying, it's these subsidies, it's these sort of the game playing that happens
1: at that level. And it's the networks. It's the networks. Like, you know, a lot of these people sit in a position of power and someone says, I need this stuff, we'll make that happen. And then if you're a poor person in another country, anywhere, even Australia, and look, I'll give you a simple example. Back in the day when I was a young and I was trying to buy a house and I had the deposit but I didn't have any credit rating because I'd been travelling, you know, I was rejected. And I remember just recently a bunch of us pooled our resources to buy a little house um, so that we could use it for a community space and um, when we walked into the bank and we all had mortgages and we all had some equity, no no money, no, no cash. But the, the conversation was so different. It was like, oh, how much do you think you want to loan? Well, we'd like you to tell us how much we can loan. Okay, here. We applied and got the money. Mm. So it's it's the systems, you know. It's like when you're in the system and you speak the language and you have some assets and you do whereas when you're out of the system you can't get in well, you might as well be a chair you might as well be a koala <laughs> the, it's bizarre so so yeah and these are coming back to your point about externalities i mean it's the greatest insult to life on earth is the, the current economic system um and i know that you know um People like Kate Rawers with her concept of economics. I mean, I love seeing that being picked up. It's really taking off and it's making people think very very differently about the economic system, and that is very powerful and very important. So so all these systems are breaking down. And, look, I would honestly say that if it wasn't for climate change bearing down on our planet, I would be 100% optimistic all the time because I do have a long view. Nothing nothing stays the same. You know, a 1,000 years ago we didn't have... Nation states. Um, Five hundred years ago, I think most people thought the world was round. You know, not um, flat. You know, a lot of these things that you're talking about—you're exploring
0: economics, you're exploring governance, you're exploring food systems, you're exploring a whole lot of different things—all together in in this one big picture thinking. And I think that's kind of where where it is that we we need to be in that space. We need to have big picture thinking in order that all of these things that have been happening, like you said, all these amazing initiatives that communities are doing and have been doing can, can have some light like sh- yeah. shone on them and that they can actually sort of come to the fore and be seen as a, a real and viable alternative. So what are some of the things that you've been doing? There's like a whole series of different organisations and programmes. Maybe if you could just describe some of those and just
1: yeah, to, for sure, and yeah. I, I find that some people have a little bit of trouble putting their finger on what it is that I do, but if I if I take a step back, so I've always loved the living world and I, I've always been aware of the, the un, injustice and the horrible things that we do to each other, especially to the, the so-called voiceless plants and animals. I spent, when I did my law degree, so I grew up in the bush out in the middle of Queensland, and I think it gave me a very grounded worldview, which I still notice today when I sit with a lot of people who have been born and raised in perhaps a, a different world, a more, more middle-class city kind of world. And, and more and more I've been seeing the mindset that Westerners have, and I might come back to that actually. But So what I did is I was interested in trying to be a useful presence in you know, supporting environmental care and protection. So I studied law. Uh, I did um, an arts degree in political science and history, and history is really important for this stuff because when you hear people today thinking they've reinvented uh, invented something amazing and you know you've been doing this for 35 years and you go actually that that's just building on the thing that was done in the 90s but it's good it's all good um so i did the law helped me understand the basic think of it as coding for society it basically through the constitution and all the different kind of legal structures and where power came from and what is it exactly that um the australian system had to come over here with and dumped onto this continent with its english legal system. So I did environmental law for some time and then I went off and worked with Aboriginal mates because I was very frustrated with the law that just anything you did with law was slow and grumpy and wasn't fun and it wasn't creative. And whether it was government or in private practice, I personally just didn't, didn't gel, didn't fit. <clears throat> and it wasn't until, um, probably the mid, probably around 2009 when I went to a wild law conference that I came across this concept called earth jurisprudence, which is a philosophy talking about earth-centeredness but with a bit of specificity to it so to explain why I'm involved with a couple of different organizations it's really helpful the starting point was when I read Thomas Berry's book he's a deep ecologist and I often joke you know he's pretty good for an old white dude but what was what's nice about Thomas Berry's work for a westerner is that we're looking through a western lens at the western system bashing it to pieces and trying to think about how we do it differently. And, yes, his work was deeply inspired by Indigenous people, but as Mary Graham says, we have to look into our own cultural worldviews. We can't just click a finger and become something different. There are some very, very, very deeply held cultural ideas and ways of being in our system that we have to understand if we want to shift it. So it was actually Thomas Berry's book, The Great Work, that inspired all of the work I've done since reading it in two thousand. In the great work, he looks at the underpinning, what he called the underpinning structures of industrial society and what he calls the kind of the four institutional pillars of the way we literally work, live and play in the West. And he looks at law and government, economics, education, and religion. And that all four of these underpinning structures, he said, um, have emerged from a deeply anthropocentric worldview and have enabled by being anthropocentric, by being so human-centred that nothing else matters, of course you can use it as you wish because you don't have regard for those things. You don't have respect for those things. And it's from that four-point structure that when we created AILA, it wasn't just about law. So the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, a group of us formed in the end of 2011, incorporated in 2012, started very much with a focus on the law, particularly on rights of nature because it's, as I started to say before, is a very handy spearhead concept. It actually jolts people into thinking not just about the rights of nature but the flaws in our current property system. So ala was really born from this interest in systems change but very specifically articulated. It's not wishy-washy or fluffy. Um, it looks at law. It looks at economics. It looks at education. It looks at religion. We don't go in anywhere and critique religion. Where we're not, that's not our cup of tea. But we are very interested in the human spirit and emotion and feelings and love. So we have an earth ethics and an earth spirituality kind of focus. So in 2012, we formed up the Australian Earth Laws Alliance and we started workshops and we call them a little road show to, to find out who else around Australia was doing this stuff because nothing worse than being a bit arrogant thinking you've invented something new. What we realised was we were bringing people together who already had a great interest in this. And there's a huge amount of terrific work already out there. But it was probably in 2013, early 2014, when I realised that everything we were doing as kind of interest in law or governance or systems or even education was bumping up against the economic system. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, cut a long story short, when Bronwyn Morgan, who's a professor at UNSW, asked if I might help her run a workshop a conference in 2016 around social enterprise and the new economy. <clears throat> we both agreed maybe it would be cool to ask the conference folks if they think or they thought there might be use in developing a network of civil society people interested in shifting the economic system. And that's why, flashback then another year or so later, um, we set up the New Economy Network Australia, which is its own incorporated entity. It's a cooperative and it's got this whole other focus and a whole other network of people who are really passionate about all the things you mentioned: food, different work systems, universal basic income, um, building the sort of the psychological and inner health that you need to make the transition, um, energy, challenging extractivism, social enterprises, small businesses, community gardens, and all your wonderful world of permaculture and food. So, whereas Ayla has really evolved organically from the ideas from that was stimulated by the book. Nina was a very specific strategy, particularly um, in the work that I was doing to help be part of that building of it, <clears throat> which was we need entities and spaces to civil society to explore what economics is and isn't, um, to not just think about big picture systems change, but to join up all of the dots and all of the energy, as we've already said, that's already out there, just phenomenally awesome, good people doing great things. And then the master plan is we're just coming to it now we've invited all the different members of Nina to share their ideas about what what strategic things we need to do to shift the economy. So it's literally this cobbled together grassroots up civil society strategy for a new economy. And it's just going to be a dodgy old draft probably in June, but it's really cool because it's showing what ordinary folks working in the food sector or housing or whatever what they think not only should we be doing but what should a group like Nina be supporting across Sectors for each other. And then the only other thing I'll mention in terms of my organisations is, as I already said, I grew up out west and my formal schooling never taught me anything about the history of Australia. It wasn't until I started working with awesome women from the Gunglu Aboriginal community in Queensland, central Queensland, that I was lucky enough to be really indoctrinated into the impacts of colonisation, my culture, Aboriginal culture, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then I knuckled down for ten years and raised money and worked with friends on community development. So all the time that Ayla was starting to form up, we had um, <clears throat> a little program inside Ayla called Future Dreaming, which was how we formally connected with informal friendships and relationships under the kind of the First Nations or Aboriginal banner. And then I think I can't remember. I'm losing track of time. Plus COVID ate my brain either last year or at the end of twenty. 20- 19, we incorporated a new entity called Future Dreaming Australia because Mary Graham, myself, and another amazing Indigenous leader, um, Ross Williams, who's a Bindle Juru man, but lives down in Brisbane, and another couple of other mates decided what we want is a space where Aboriginal people can lead the discussions about their culture, but share it with white fellows because we all need that knowledge, but also a place where we can trust each other to explore what I've said is this, this new way forward into the 21st century that enables First Peoples to have self-determination and to do their thing and to do it for their people and to care for country, but enables Westerners or non-Indigenous folks in this continent to learn about the First Peoples and respect that remarkable knowledge system and governance system, but to also find their own way, you know, into a better ecological future. So that's why I'm now the co-founder and manager of three (laughs) organisations, but it ain't just me. You know, I've got tonnes of great volunteers, but... I'm really proud of the work that, that everyone in all of these networks has done because there's no funding. Everyone's free. Just incredible work, you know, and that, that's I think that's what gets me up in the morning, probably the, the thought of making sure possums and bats and frogs might be better off but also literally to connect with all these amazing other human beings who really deeply care. And if you watch mainstream news, you wouldn't know we were all out there. But as you and I know, sometimes like the dominant population are good we've just got these phenomenal barriers um from the from those who have really benefited from an unjust system and they're not going to go away easily so we have to break down the concrete of colonized hierarchical power
0: mm.
1: love of flourishing weeds and blue bended bees so i
0: think yeah. that's a very positive message that you just said just a moment ago about how that you know often we think that there's a lot that's that's going on that there's this sort of corruption and badness and all that but most people are really have the heart of wanting to do something really good yeah they do and that's 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 i think an incredibly and and we know that too when we this kind of work that both of us do we we visit people we talk to people we're talking with people in all your across australia and across the world and we see all of these little projects together and there's this mycelial network that kind of connects them all, but they're still not being seen. So things like like Aila or Nenna or, you know, all these things can actually start to sort of, you know, shine the light so these little mushrooms can form
1: and they can be seen exactly. and you can actually go, oh, there it is. That's what it is. That's what we're looking at. So- that's right. And, and all we can do is our own humble contribution. You know, that's all we can do. None of us can save the world on our own. None can change the system on our own. But if we all do our thing and, if possible, bring others with us or I often say if you have your own ideas and you want to lead, go for it. But if you just want to be a second dancer, there are so many amazing projects out there that need someone else to come and stand next to them and go, "This is, I want to do this. You know, even my work with Ayla, um, none of it would have sustained without the cool people who came in and went, this is nifty. Can I volunteer with you? I went, yes. <laughs> yes. None, of, none of us do it on our own. And, Some and people I might I have a few great. crazy ideas, but we really need everybody to join up. And I don't mean that enough. I'm sure people can tell from the way I talk, but I'm no, you know, Pollyanna. Oh, we must join up and everything will be great. It won't. It's and still it's hard work yeah. in the future. But what are you going to do instead? Stay in bed and watch TV? I mean, sure, do that for a day, then get back up and do something good. Yeah. And I think too, that what you just said
0: to like seeing that what's going on in the world is permission to stand up again don't wait for permission from someone else you don't need yes. someone to say yes you can stand up and speak up
1: the, the earth is saying you can stand up and speak up yeah mm. yeah and i think interestingly and that's a whole nother nerdy governance conversation but since the 1970s since the raging tsunami of neoliberalism governments have more and more abandoned their post in the spaces that are meant to support civil society or meant to support social justice so more and more there is no one that's going to give you permission. There's no one who's going to hand you funding to do it. Sometimes you just gotta stand up and do it. And that that sucks sometimes, but it's also very liberating. It is very liberating. Can yeah. Speak as someone who just does the work and I scrounge money in other ways. I mean, I'm not bludging off um, society in any way, but that would be okay too. Um, you know, I, I scrounge money with workshops and raised money from conferences, but very rarely does anyone get like a salary hand, here, change the world and here's a ninety thousand dollar salary. <laughs> You yep. piece together that shit so you can survive and do the things you want to do so yeah yeah that's but absolutely that no. that was pretty damn fine
0: so one one last thing that i wanted to ask you about because i know you've got other things to go out and oh, do and coordinate and and um your days are awesomely wonderfully busy doing this work um can you talk to us a little bit about the regenerative songlines project yes. we haven't yeah. touched on that yet
1: yeah yeah well it's so new isn't it and um mm. Asking so, the first thing is um, the Regenerative Songlines Australia Network. It doesn't really have a fourth word, but we're calling it Regenerative Songlines Australia. Firstly, I'm excited about this project because it's being led by amazing people like Ann polina Tyson Yonca Porter, Mary Graham, and Ross Williams have now been in there. Charles Marshall, Alana Marshall, all of these incredible Indigenous thinkers and leaders. Um, <clears throat> and so right now. There's a website has been popped up and there's going to be a symposium in July. If anyone's listening, please visit the website. There'll be more info um, at the end of this week. So the website is www.regenerative-songlines.net.au. But the story, to go backwards, is um, some really lovely people, including Jason Twill and Louise Crabtree, um, had been connecting to this rather Odd entity. It's connected to the Commonwealth Secretariat, like the Commonwealth Secretariat, which is you now the last bastions of colonialism from the British Empire. But the the Commonwealth Secretariat has this really cool initiative under Common Earth, and it's called the Regenerative Roadmap Process. And so, like Costa Rica, there's the Regenerative Roadmap Costa Rica. I believe there's a Regenerative Roadmap New Zealand. And so, when Jason, through his contacts, and he was about to leave the country and go somewhere else, said to a few of us, "Hey." it'd be great if Australia could connect to this regenerative roadmap process. And um, we all said, well, we must have Indigenous leadership because it's country. Um, so long story short, last year we had a series of meetings where Jason brought in um, a few of us and some of his connections and then um, Anne Polina started to really get a feel for what people were interested in and what we thought we could do. Um, and to cut a long story short, the The Regen Songlines project is going to be a number of things, but to kick it off, there's a really cool map on the website and it will show where um, different regenerative projects are. And, you know, we're still in the throes of defining regenerative because it could be anything. It could be based, which is what a lot of people think about, but it could also be regenerative um, economics or regenerative health issues. So we're in the throes of defining what this looks like and what it means, but I think the thing I'm excited about is the two aspects of true Indigenous leadership and us white fellas absolutely being partners in this, but quite frankly, shutting up long enough to let the mob do what they got to do. You know, it's, they're still connected to their country. They know their country better than most of us. So this is a wonderful opportunity to work with Indigenous people together, um, let them lead the show for a change in certain sectors. That's very hard to um, join groups that are not dominated by white fellows. And then the mapping tool and the network will show off all, eventually we're going to invite, you know, everyone to upload their info onto it. So when you want to go, what's going on in Queensland around regenerative agriculture or permaculture gardens or whatever, um, you can poss- possibly use that to have a look. And it's not the only project of its kind, but it is going to be quite remarkable given the calibre of the Indigenous people leading it. Um, yeah, so visit the website, have a think, and I think what we'll probably do is now that we're getting the foundations shored up, We'll be able to invite people through the launch symposium to just get connected, get on a mailing list, and um, I suspect by the end of this year we'll probably start really making sure people can find each other really effectively. And, again, it's a bit like a regenerative Nina because it's it's all about how do people find each other, see the projects out there, feel really encouraged and optimistic and learn from each other and you might want to reach out and go, hey, you're doing this cool project, I want to do like something like that in my community and making the invisible visible and hopefully raising the profile of Indigenous knowledge. So, so yeah, um, I'm I'm helping out probably under the banner of Ayla and Future Dreaming because with Mary Graham and Ross Williams connected to the steering group of the Regen Songlines, it's kind of very much a Future Dreaming uh, supported project. So it's all very exciting, it's all very interconnected and confusing too. <laughs> they're all they're all part of kind of like an ecology of organisations, mm-hmm. and that
0: they. they it's kind of like I try and describe all the stuff that I do too. So Evan says to me, Evan, for those of you listening, it's my husband, says, I don't think anyone really gets what you do sometimes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, but there's it's, so many faces kind of, to it. And, uh, and I think that's, the, that's the, the beauty of true systems change work is you might come into it from a space, like in my case I came in from law and governance and perhaps for you initially food and permaculture, but everything's connected. So um, it's like. Where do I stop and I can honestly say from my point of view I have stopped creating new organizations because for me I've got <laughs> happiness I've got the Earth Laws Alliance which is at fundamentally at earth-centered governance and the rules and the institutions and the, and the shape of our society and how we change that and Nina is an incredible living organism of its own but from an Ala point of view it's also a strategic way to get the economy up into people's faces so they can talk about what grassroots economics looks like and then of course for me, as someone who's passionate about Australia um, and fascinated by First Nations peoples or Indigenous peoples' culture and worldview, um, future dreaming is the kind of the, the cherry on top, but it's always been underneath Ayla's sort of formation. So for us, there's slightly different ways that we have to approach different audiences and different projects. That's why they have to exist as entities. And I just want to say the funny thing about working in the West or the Western culture is no matter how much you want to focus on systems change, so many people have still been raised up through particular disciplinary lenses. That's actually why um, Ayla was happy to create a separate entity for the economic stuff Um, because not everyone gets that it's all connected. Some people just want to come in and talk about Bitcoin or solar panels and you kind of have to reach out to those audiences in a way that's, manageable and supportive you know and to, to rave on about deep ecology to someone who really just wants to set up their own little business doing good things um sometimes that's inappropriate so I'm um, why we've got these different sort of entities that are focused on shining a light as you would say more on different aspects of what we're doing but they're all connected everything yeah
0: and i and i think the thing that connects them all and it's what what brought me into permaculture from the first instance was as you said before they the love of life, love yes. love of the earth and that how is it that I feel that I'm most capable of actually doing that work, being in service to the, to the planet, to, to life on earth. And yeah. that, that's been my way. I figured, well, everyone eats unless you're breatharian, you eat. <laughs> so it's a way of accessing so many conversations
1: yes. around
0: caring for the planet. And,
1: you know, not only that, Morag, I have to say, as someone who's like, I'm 51 this year, so I, I like to call myself an old girl. I'm settling into old midlife and old age really comfortably because I think I was always a bit, a bit sedentary, if you know what I mean. Anyway, um, as someone who's been around for 30 years, what has been remarkable, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is back in, I guess, the early nineties, environmentalism was either green or brown. You were protecting a forest or you were looking after waste management. Food didn't pop up. Magma no. was still silenced. And what's been happening, as you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the food systems and the impact of agriculture have just, the awareness of what the impacts have been, especially in our poor continent, um, have just exploded. So food is is a crucial heartland for all of the issues around justice, around human issues, around ecology. So it's been a very interesting thing to watch. Um, Now that I'm getting older and I can look back over 30 years of work, it's very interesting to watch the discourse change and the systems shift New things do appear, but a lot of things are being recycled at the moment. And that's a whole other conversation. So I'm getting a bit I get a bit grumpy in certain conversations going, hey, it's still not going to solve the problem. It's a Western way of thinking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think focusing on on the on building the relationships seems to be the key. I think like strengthening that that whole the the ecological system of all of these different aspects. And so that they see each other as well as being seen by people who haven't seen them yet. That's that it's. I think it's, it's incredible work that you've, that you've been doing, and, and um, thank oh, you. Thank for, you. For, I mean, you're an enormous energy. You put into it all the time. I mean, you just don't stop. I know. I know I you love it.
1: It's so easy to do. And for anyone who's listening who goes, wow, I could never work like that, it's like, oh, in my 20s i just take months off and travel because I really didn't have a purpose. I had all this energy and ideas, but I didn't know where to put it all. Mm-hmm. So I used to work like an aimless person, a member of the Lost White Tribes of the Settled mm-hmm. Continents, um, <clears throat> it comes from love It comes from, and I guess developing some set of knowledge in a place. But can I just say the last thing I really want to say is we don't even have to deeply understand planet Earth to love and care for her. I think the best thing we can do as Westerners is get a massive dose of humility and open-mindedness and just stop thinking we have to fix everything straight away and just listen a bit and sit still under a tree for a bit. Um, because and um, Mary Graham quotes Lilla Watson as saying, whitefellas always seem to float about three feet above the ground. And I think that's the single biggest problem. It's part of the separation. We don't just sit still and look. Like over there right now there's some kookaburras going off and I saw a couple of soggy blue-banded bees in the rain this morning. You know, what do they need to live well here? Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the basic question. All these white fellows keep getting all excited about technology and everything else. It's like, no, we need to stop a lot of what we do. We don't need to do more. Something mm. nothing in our culture or our mindset that just wants to overcomplicate everything, you know, is remarkably capable at perpetuating itself. And all we have to do is get into the rhythm like you do, more through permaculture, to support and catalyse the continuation of life. So I just want to say, I guess, as I'm learning more, And learning less and learning how to unlearn. It's really just humility. Sometimes you shut up and have a listen to nature or other people and go, I don't have to fix this straight away. I don't have to know everything. And that's not always our fault. We've got a culture that is terrified of embarrassment, risk, open ended conversations. Everything's got to be fixed in a project management plan. Now there's an app for that, you know, just take your time and have a listen to other people and and just don't trash the joint.
0: It's simple, really, when you put it like that. Thank you
1: for closing it like that because that's that's really at the heart of it, isn't it? It is. Mm. And some of us, I spend a lot of time, you know, investigating the complexities of the system simply so I can understand enough to try to be a sensible communicator to those who still believe in that system. Mm-hmm. For anyone who's already getting as a problem, um, please take heart, you know, plant a tree, watch it grow, support other people who are growing things and have ideas. But if you're not growing things or restoring things, then it's still just an idea, you know, so enough for me.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me. And for anyone who's listening, I'm going to put all the links, um, the references and um, all the organisations, all the links you'll find in the show notes. Um, So thank you again, Michelle. It's been just an absolute pleasure to take the time to chat with you today. Lovely to be with you. Thanks, Don. Bye. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Head on over to my YouTube channel, the links below, and then you'll be able to watch this conversation, but also make sure that you subscribe because that way you'll be notified of all new films that come out. And also you'll get notified of all the new, all the new interviews and conversations that come out. So thanks again for joining us. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.